I'm Ben Silverio. And I'm Aaron Klein. And I'm Ansel Birch, your host in post. And, and it's, it's time, time to party! In space! We are not doctors and we don't give medical advice. Please drink responsibly. This episode was recorded on February 27th, 2021. Silent, Silent finger, finger guns! guns. <laughs> there was one explosion, because there's some explosions in the movie that we're talking about. Yes, the movie that we're talking about today during my favorite segment, the edutainment segment for Star Trek Generations. <laughs> the the uh, hand signal that comes with edutainment. It's like a rainbow. <laughs> the more you know. In and this month, we're joined by a very special guest, uh, stunning Stella hey. Cheeks. <laughs> That's me. Oh, Space finger guns. <laughs> yeah. Welcome, Stella. I'm a slut for Star Trek, so they brought me up. Yes. <laughs> Co-host of Not Your Demographic, X-Trex, Plan 9 burlesque producer. She does a lot of stuff. That's true. And now she talks about Star Trek with us. Yes, I'm here. With us here on Time to Party. <laughs> to talk about Star Trek and the horse girls of the Enterprise. That should be a memoir. <laughs> I would fully write that. <laughs> that for real feels like a book that you would write during like NaNoWriMo. Like I've just got to push something out in one month and it would absolutely be Enterprise, Captains, Horse Girls. <laughs> like focus. I, I want to see this now. <laughs> I don't write the show. I just, I just like put the dots together. They're all horse girls. <laughs> I can see that getting a ton of Indiegogo backing. <laughs> Uh, to get a print copy. <laughs> it's just a crossover novel of them all at a, at a paddock. Oh, that's their weird heaven, is all of them in space with their horses. Aww. God, that reminds me of a book that I just backed on Indiegogo, uh, which is a history of the Josie and the Pussycats movie. Of course that is. Cool. Something you backed. Um, I also backed it because of one of the add-on perks was a screen-used prop, and it was the headphones with the cat ears. Oh, oh cool. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. That's cool. Right? That's worth it. Yeah, that's I'm definitely worth stoked. it. I can't wait to get that shit. But before that, we're going to edutain you. Yeah, welcome. On this episode of Time to Party, we do a... It's not a deep dive. I hope you weren't expecting one. It's a shallow dive, or as we like to call it, a trip down the lazy river of edutainment, where we've each picked a piece of technology. That's a loose term that we use for lots of yes. things, but we pick a t piece of technology and we each are going to do a short presentation on it. Talking <laughs> anthropological <laughs> technology, anything created yes. by humanity. I'm right, right, exactly. Everything was created by humanity. In, it's all fake. Edutaining. It's all fake. Yep. Why are we in debt with fake money? <laughs> Why are we concerned about we fake can. borders? Oh my god. <laughs> we could and have talked at length about this. <laughs> oh yes. Yes we have. Uh, Alright. <laughs> Who wants to go first? Stella, do you want to go first or do you want to go second? Uh, I'll go first. Mine is not great. Uh, as you have probably realized from me talking about it in probably every episode, I am fixated on the fact that all the captains of the Enterprise are horse girls. <laughs> and so I Googled a bunch of shit about saddles because I was like, I just want to talk about these idiots Ooh. and their horses. <laughs> <laughs> I'm ready. I'm so excited. I do just want to, like, people who are not Star Trek fans, the reason I say this is Captain Pike, who is the captain before Kirk, um, in the first, very first episode, uh, so the actual real pilot, which Kirk wasn't in, um, he gets, like, tricked by all of these, like, telepathy 
uh, telepathic aliens and they he they put him in different like scenarios and one of the scenarios they put him in is like he's on a picnic with a lovely woman and his best horse is there and it's like a horse from his childhood it's not just like a random horse he's like oh this horse that I know I love this horse and then in TNG there's like several holodeck episodes where like Kirk or Picard is just like fucking around on a horse and he's like ah and Picard lives on a vineyard and in on the vineyard they have their fucking horses to go up and down the vineyard um, and then Kirk obviously in this movie has his weird ranch with his horses that he likes more than his girlfriend. <laughs> also, it's better. It's better. Also, Kirk was uh, raised in Iowa, and I assume there are horses in Iowa. So, <laughs> I think that's a fa- that's a pretty safe assumption. Yeah, it's a safe assumption. Like Kirk, you know, Kirk had a horse in Iowa, maybe. Even though technically, I was kind of pissed. I was like, "Why is this farm in Idaho? Just say Iowa." Stupid. Uh, it was his, uncle's, it was his farm. uncle's farm. I know, but still. Yeah. Just say Iowa. That seems like a way. Like that's just like just like making up Antonia. There are several billion other girlfriends that you could use from. Like he, he like there are more. There are more in canon people that you could have used. Anyways. So let's talk about saddles, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> yeah let's do it. Tell us about saddles. The interesting <laughs> thing about sa- uh, saddles that I think is interesting is that it's one of those like ubiquitous human inventions that like kind of sprouted up in different parts of the world at different times. And like there are even now there are saddles that like you call like there's like an Asian saddle and a Spanish saddle and an English saddle and an Australian saddle and an, a Western style saddle. So I think it's interesting that like throughout our human history there are certain like pieces of technology um that are invented in different ways in similar ways that take from each other but like it is one of those ubiquitous human inventions um also i guess if keep it star trek it could be like a weird like cedar invention like all humanoids invent Mm. invent saddles (laughs) and all humanoids do these types of things um i'm trying to pepper in more star trek stuff because i don't know a lot about saddles (laughs) That's okay. <laughs> so uh, I had a hard time finding like when the like first uh, saddle was invented because there's a bunch of different uh, history on that um, because it is one of those ubiquitous uh, ubiquitous uh, inventions. But uh, the saddle that we think of um, with like the metal stirrups and like the spurs um, is thought to have been invented in 350 A.D., um, by this, uh, 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 by the uh, Sarmatians. I don't know mm-hmm. what civilization that is, but it is a cool civilization. And then the Huns, because the Huns were like big old thieves, they were like, "Yeah, we're gonna take this. Goodbye." Oh, also, we killed everybody, but the saddle is now ours. <laughs> so then <laughs> they uh, took that design with the metal syrups, like. Um, into Central Asia, and then that is part of the design um, that has become known as the uh, European saddle and um, inspired the Western saddle. The Western saddle, the one that we think of when we watch movies, um, Westerns, and probably, like, I don't know, the saddle that they used. We didn't really get to see it. We just see a a shot of Picard, like, throwing the saddle down and being like, I know how to ride a fucking horse, too! (laughs) Which I don't feel like we talked about I enough. I love that. Like, Kirk is like... I know, I love that. <laughs> Kirk is like... Kirk's like, I'm taking off, fuck you. I'm gonna go with my horse, goodbye. And just assume that he didn't know how to ride a horse, but, like, Kirk, miss- he forgot that all Enterprise captains have to be horse girls, and Picard literally yanks the saddle down and is like, I know how to put on a saddle. 
Right, exactly. <laughs> He's right behind him. <laughs> All right, if this is what we're doing. Yeah, Kirk does look appropriately surprised when like Picard comes up and he's like, "Oh, oh yeah, yeah, horse girl respect." <laughs> <laughs> I see you can also ride. Maybe that's the moment. Maybe that's the moment where Kirk was like, I can respect this Enterprise captain, horse girl. Because Kirk also respects Pike. That's like two captains that he like actually likes in a sea of captains he fucking hates. Maybe that's the secret. You gotta be nice to horses. Anyways, the saddle we know now as the Western saddle is evolved from, um, unsurprisingly, uh, a Spanish saddle. So when uh, Spaniards came over and they brought horses, they obviously brought their saddle, and then it was used by working cowboys in Mexico, and then it's kind of just transformed into what we know today. Um, that's really all I got. There are other there are other things um, that say some saddles uh, could have been invented as far back as 4000 BC, but that's more stuff like thinking of saddle-like equipment, like a, a specially positioned like blanket, not necessarily what we think of as a saddle, but kind of what we think of as a saddle now kind of came from 350 or 365. Though there were obviously tons of different things that they were like, oh, this hurts my ass when I ride this giant horse. I guess I'll try something else. Rather than stop, we're just gonna invent a special chair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not shockingly too, like saddles at one point were like, huge status symbols to be like, look, my ass is comfortable on this giant thing and I can afford this. But also like once the um, saddle with the metal stirrups and the spurs, like part of the reason the Huns took that because they were like, oh, this is going to make fighting and killing people way more effective. And so then it became obviously like a big tool in mm-hmm. war. It was less about comfort, more like, oh, I can kill more effectively. Neat. There you <laughs> the go. The human condition. The Huns. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> Two editorial comments. Uh, the Sarmatians uh, were a confederation in what is modern-day Iran. Oh, oh. okay. Because okay. okay. I did cool. not look it up. In the Eurasian steppe <laughs> in modern-day Iran. Yep, I did a lot of Mongol research at one point in my life. Uh, secondarily, uh, the designer of the Indecisionist uh, logo that shows up all over, because this is a deci- Indecisionist production, uh, is a saddler. That is his his real job uh, when he's not designing logos and doing graphic uh, work. He is a saddle maker, a legit, like, hand-crafted awesome. saddle so maker. dope. I hope it, he doesn't listen to this, so cool. this podcast so... and he's like, she missed so much about saddles because I really just wanted to talk about horse girls, but that's not technology. So I'm going to send it to out. him specifically and get him to, like, uh, give us responses because I bet he'll love it. No. He'll be like, she missed a lot. So what you're saying... So what you're saying is that we can have limited edition time to party saddles. They're, they'll be very <laughs> oh expensive, God. but yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm certain. <laughs> Aaron and I don't even like horses. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Just put it on a chair. Yeah. <laughs> That's now. a thing, actually. Uh, I don't know if you've seen these in like um, uh, campaign tents for a long time. I said I wasn't going to be part of the divergence. Um, no, be part uh, of it. <laughs> where, like, in your campaign tent, as, a, as like, a general, because you had to have a horse, and you had to have a campaign tent, and you had to have a place to sit down, the one just became the other. So there was, like, a stand that your saddle would sit on, and you could sit on your saddle for, like, sitting at your desk and doing stuff. Um, I want that now. Right? <laughs> I definitely want that to just be typing while I'm sitting on a saddle. <laughs> I think that sounds dope. Yeah. 
There's an episode of uh, The Expanse. There's a character who's kind of like a cowboy in space. And he goes to a bar. And he, when you zoom out at the end, all of the bar stools are saddles. Cool. And he, so oh. he's just like sitting on the saddle. He's like holding it at the front. And I was like, that. I like that. That's interesting. It would be, you'd have to plan to go to a bar like that. You can't wear, like, wear a dress. You I don't think. Side saddle. <laughs> I guess you could sit side saddle. Yeah. Yeah, Which that's are true. actually specialized, you're right. specially you're right. made saddles. They have like specially made side saddles. Like mm-hmm. you can sit side saddle on one of them or you can be like in the Princess Diaries and sit on your special saddle. Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah, special saddle. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that was my right. really, really, really Excellent fucking shadow, shadow that was great. saddle talk. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was great. That's in the spirit of the show. <laughs> yes. Um, and keeping with the spirit of the show, uh, Aaron and I sometimes talk about the things that we were going to pick for edutainment, but then end up not picking. And I went through a lot of them in trying to figure out what I wanted to talk to for start talk about for Star Trek, uh, generations. I started with the spy eyeglasses. Like I wanted to look into the history of that, but Mm -hmm. I didn't find a lot of it. And then at the end, I was just like, oh, wait, why would they have information about the spy technology? I'm not a spy. Like- well, if you look up stuff about the East German police, there's actually a lot of information about spy goggles, but you have to like know where you're looking. I went to oh. the spy museum when I went to Berlin, and that's the only reason I know that. They don't allow you to take pictures of that museum. Interesting. Ah. Super sidebar, interesting, I think, about Star Trek, that the... It is interesting that they f- set up the fact that Jordy's visor got like hacked and was like used as a weapon because that's the last time we see Jordy's visor in the movies cuz going forward he has like special like eyes. Mm-hmm. Right, he has a surgery. So it is like a interesting thing to be like cuz in TNG the show there's several episodes where he's like I'm not ashamed of having this visor like blah blah blah. There's it's literally a MacGuffin in one of the episodes where they go to a planet and the planet's like we don't have any more blind people but we're about to get destroyed by an asteroid and the technology in his visor helps to like deflect the, like they figure it out. And like, so mm-hmm. it's like, maybe you shouldn't just get rid of disabled people just because it's more convenient for you. Like that's the whole point of that episode. So it's like a huge thing that like he, he's not ashamed of that. And then they're like, well, we turned it into a weapon. So I guess you have to get eyeballs now. Bye. Yeah, his, his <laughs> visor is like a superpower on an, in a couple of cases. Uh, well, and you see yeah. it in this movie as well, where he can like see the electromagnetic mm-hmm. spectrum around that magnetic door. Mm-hmm. And to be fair, he gets eyes that can yeah, do yeah. all of that stuff. They look like eyes, but they're like little robot eyes that can see that stuff. So they, they're not total transplants. But I do think that's interesting that they set up that they're going to get rid of the visor going forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking of the visor, that was the other thing I was going to look into when visor sunglasses came into fashion. <laughs> oh, my God. But I guess there's not a lot of of literature on visor <laughs> as, sunglasses. As well, there should not be. Uh, which I shouldn't have been. Right. <laughs> So uh, from there, I was like, well, what the fuck am I going to talk about? And then I thought of the holodeck scene and I'm like, oh, I wonder when they started like or what's the history of walking the plank? You know, like when did that practice become a thing? And then I looked into it and then what? And then like it wasn't (laughs) that interesting. Oh, really? That was one of the ones I was going to do, too. I thought you were going to do that one. That's funny. Yeah, like, I looked into it, and I'm just like, oh, okay, so this writer, like, in 1788 used it in a a book um, about, like, that was the first recorded, uh, you know, 
instance of walking the plank, but like they did it to mutineers all the time. So it's it's not a fun story. <laughs> so I decided not to do it. It's not a fun story. So what I did decide to do <laughs> what I did decide to do for edutainment was look into the history of the ship used in the holodeck sequence. The the actual boat, the Enterprise. So that boat used in that scene is actually called the Lady Washington, named after uh, Martha Washington. Um, It was... So the one in the movie is a replica of the original. The original one is from the 18th century, and it was uh, used uh, in the American Revolutionary War uh, to harass the British boats. So it was just, you know, being a pest to all the Brit, uh, the British Navy and stuff. Uh, it was also used as a trading vessel uh, in the Pacific. It was the first American vessel to reach Japan. Uh, the reason it was going to Japan was that they were trying to unload some pelts and they were unsuccessful. <laughs> they so, got to Japan and they were like, no, thank you. Take your pelts and leave, please. Exactly. They're like, ah, we're good. Would you like a cell phone? Thanks, bro. <laughs> <laughs> and they're, uh, the original Lady Washington ended up settling and having its final resting place in the Philippines in 1797. Mm. Oh. Uh, in 1989, um, they decided to build a replica of that ship in Aberdeen, Washington, um, for the Washington State Centennial Celebrations. Uh, that boat has been used in a bunch of films and TV. So in addition to being the nautical version of the Enterprise, it is also the HMS Interceptor in Pirates of the Caribbean. I fucking Curse knew of the Black it. Pearl. I knew it was the same boat. As soon as it yep. scrolled up, I was like, this is just that Pirates of the Caribbean. I, I, I said to my husband, I was like, oh, so they're pirates. And he was like, those are naval uniforms. And I was like, so pirates for the government. Kind of. He was like, I won't engage you about this. I will not <laughs> engage That's what I said. I was you. like, if they're buccaneers, that's technically what they are, right? Mm. <laughs> I like that that's probably a thing that your husband says to you a lot. I will not engage with you right now. <laughs> <laughs> not incorrect <laughs> in addition to being a ship for pirates of the caribbean it was also the jolly roger for captain hook in the tv show once upon mm. a time so oh, disney just loves this fucking boat well if you have a boat like wouldn't you just reuse it you're gonna build a new boat mm-hmm. Th- those big right? tall tall ships get used a bunch that's true uh the surprise mm-hmm. from master and commander is in like six or seven movies the idea of a boat being like the hms surprise (laughs) (laughs) surprise it's a boat bitch we're attacking your ship (laughs) if i ever buy a boat i'm gonna call it the hms surprise (laughs) i don't think i'll ever buy a boat but if i do that's the name fantastic what does HMS stand for? For Majesty's uh, ship. I don't know a lot about boats. No. I know quite a bit about trains. <laughs> I, I know too much about boats. Back to the trains. Uh, yes. So when I ended up settling on looking up information about the Lady Washington, once I found out that it was going to be, or that it was the ship from Pirates of the Caribbean, I'm like, this is gonna, this is gonna pop Aaron so hard. I'm delighted. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, now you know a little bit about a ship. Yay! Excellent shallow dive on our lazy river of entertainment. <laughs> I 
characteristically took too many notes. So I have a lot of notes about <laughs> my particular topic. Okay, so this is kind of like a loose link maybe, but I... So the ones that I thought about, I thought about doing gang plank, gang planks. I thought about doing flashlights because they have those like weird handheld flashlights. So I thought momentarily about like, what's the technology on this? Uh, also, this is not the one that I did, but I did like a weird like mini dive while. OK, so in that scene with Data and Jordy, they are standing in front of these containers that are labeled uh Mach 5 and so I was like okay that's got to be like science fiction at this point when this movie was made and so I looked up a little bit about the like Mach is the uh speed that you go and so far as humans we've only ever reached 3.3 Mach speed supersonic is the top speed that we as humans can get to five Mach is the absolute top of supersonic speed before you get to hyperspeed. So the idea is that these like intership, interplanetary, interspace vessels that he's standing behind are like just shy of hypersonic drive. And so I looked it up because I was like, okay, I'm interested now about what like the fastest uh, things that we have currently. It's a 3.3 Mach, it's a SR-71 Blackbird, uh, but Boeing just signed a contract that they're trying to make an M5 jet into a Mach 5 vehicle, so it's like becoming current day technology that was at, in this like movie in Star Trek in the 24th century, is considered like ubiquitous technology, like we're already headed to that point. I just found that really fascinating. So that's like a really mini dive, that's like, okay, we're getting into the lazy <laughs> river and we're now like in the tube and we got like a uh, a waterfall hit us about Mach 5, so that that's the little <laughs> waterfall one. Hit us. But the thing that I, re that I really wanted to learn about, okay, so when the ship has separated the and the Enterprise is like crashing into the earth, and they're like sliding through and they hit, there's that like huge sequence of the Enterprise crashing through to this planet and becoming like total, basically. There's that scene where they show the top of the Enterprise and like the windows at the top with the sky above it. And it made me think about when you've been in space for that long and you're now faced with a sky above you, what that must feel like and what that is like for people who normally do reentry. So I did some research about astronaut reentry and what it's like when you actually come back from space and how that experience of crashing on the Enterprise into a planet like that would probably be massively traumatic for most people because it's really difficult to reintegrate when you come back to a planet. So what normally happens, astronauts say that when you're uh, reentering, also, I loved this scene and all the flinging that was happening. A I was like, there's flinging. clearly like a flinging component to... <laughs> there had to be a flinging component to the auditions because literally everybody was good at it. There wasn't a single poor flinger. There were some people who I was like, you're going to die. <laughs> like, <laughs> landed on their head. They've all gotten very good at yeah, it over the years. It's clearly... Yeah, Worf has an oh. A-plus fling. Super good. Yeah, it's clearly... It's clearly a thing that when you become a Star Trek actor, you have you have to learn how to do this really well. And so I thought everybody in this was doing a really good job. And then looking up this information about what it's like to re-enter, it makes a lot of sense, too. Because when astronauts re-enter, they say that they can feel shimmies, tremors, and even the f feeling that the capsule is rolling, even when it's heading in the same direction. So that's part of why people like can be flung in other directions, because the gravity is starting to pull you in ways that you don't anticipate. So... 
The atmosphere also makes noise. You can start to hear the rumble outside of the vehicle. It's like an animal that continues to gain magnitude as you re-enter. And so as these people are crashing through this atmosphere, it also sounds like there's animals roaring around them as they're re-entering this, which sounds horrifying and like fascinating. I love the idea of one of the things I wrote down was that I found the evacuation of the ship to be like a plus watching the separation happen. It's clearly these people have trained for this kind of thing. Like that's the whole idea is that you're a generation, a generational ship living in space. You moment, have to learn about that. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And especially cause this, this, this enterprise has families and stuff on board. I actually like do like that. They showed them like gathering the kids and stuff. Cause it's a big part of TNG. Yeah. That they are now family ships. And there is a moment. There's not a lot of Beverly Crusher in this movie, which is a shame because I love me some Bev, but there is a moment where she's like teaching everybody to like, she's like brace, brace, cover your heads. And she covers one of her nurses heads and doesn't even cover her own head. And I'm like, Bev, you're such a good boss. It was really sweet. Aww. I was like, Oh, she doesn't get a lot in this movie. She mostly just gets thrown into a, a fake river, but she has a good moment during this like specific crash scene because she's so good at triage. She's literally one of the best actors that they have in Starfleet, like to the point where in one of the seasons she like goes to be head of medical and then she comes back. Like, so just to watch her have that little moment and be like, I'm fucking great at this. Like triage, I got it. Yeah, I really liked it. And I. They, it's also like, she's obviously protecting their head because there's a bunch of shit falling all around them because the ship's like being destroyed and total does its landing. But also part of that is that when you're re-entering, some astronauts say that it's like, so when the separation of the service trunk like separates from the other pieces that like fall away into the ocean, they say that it sound that it feels like being hit in the back of a chair with a baseball bat. And so you're like whipped forward also and you get this like huge shock to your spine. So it makes sense that she's like, okay, you have to protect their heads and necks because they're not prepared for what this impact is gonna do to them. So I'm learning more about this, like it made me in hindsight also really appreciate that. Cause I don't know anything about Crusher other than she gets thrown in a fake ocean at some point. <laughs> so it was like the only thing I really got to see from her. I was like, oh, okay, this is nice. Is I didn't know she was the doctor really other than i knew that her name was crusher but i like missed that she was the doctor i didn't hear bones and i was like i'm not paying attention who doctor who <laughs> bones is the best character in all of star trek and then we have other and then there's everybody else <laughs> so one of the other things that happens when you're in space like especially once you get up of like five six months you astronauts start to lose their fluid volume you lose up to 22 percent of your blood volume it just becomes thinner because gravity isn't affecting it and it's not like pooling in the same way and so when you re-enter all of your blood starts to pool it all moves down your body and starts to pool in like the lower half of your body because gravity is starting to affect it and it's starting to like regain its volume again so when astronauts come back they have to like go through physical therapy especially the longer you've been out there if you've been out for more than six months like you have to have this readjustment period and some of the longest flights now have lasted a year a little over a year i think the longest flight i looked up some information from the last woman um christina coke was up for 328 days so she's just short of scott kelly who was up there for just over a year and when they came back they said that it took them their goal was to be able to walk without assistance within five days of re-entry because you literally can't feel the gra- when you are readjusting to gravity like that, you don't understand how to pick your foot up and move. And so you need like a person on either side of you at all times, anytime you're trying to walk until you can like readjust to the feeling of the gravity. I went to the Kennedy Space Center uh, in Orlando, Florida, 
several years ago and I went to a presentation by a former astronaut and there was like a question and answer panel afterwards and I asked him about what that was like what what re-entry is like and specifically what the hardest thing was and he said that same thing that the longer you're up in space once you come back it's like an exponential thing about learning to re-walk and how bizarre it is as a as an astronaut to like I can't even walk. I can't do anything. And so I found that really interesting too. And on this ship, of course, they're just like, everyone gets up and moves around. Well, we can evacuate this planet in like two they seconds. They also have artificial gravity. Obviously it's different. They, they are like operating with like a fake gravity. So maybe their blood is not pooling. And theoretically, like the scientists have figured out how to do like long-term space without like losing your blood volume. Right. <laughs> Right, exactly. It's like the, uh, that's what I found interesting about this is like, this is us right now in the 21st century. Like by the time we get to the 24th century and be, and are able to do something like a generational ship, we would need to be able to simulate things like gravity. And part of that, like the, one of the other things when you come back, you have to relearn how to deal with like weight and balance. You, there are weight machines and there's training on the ships that are specifically designed to keep your muscle mass up so that it doesn't like deteriorate and you get back and you're like falling down like a noodle, especially the longer that you're up there. But it's it's just not the same. Like your weight training just isn't the same when you don't have a gravitational force that you're like relearning how to use. So when you come back, you have to like get used to things being heavy and picking things up and what it's like to actually use your muscles to pick things up again. When you have to you have to readjust emotionally to having the wind and the sky as something that you have access to again and so the idea of being in space with we talked before about the uh, the replicator and so when there's food that's replicated it's one thing but you kind of always know that it's wrong it's sort of the same way with like sky in space where when you look up and see the sky above you you don't really know what that emotional experience is like until you've been outside of the sky and looked down on it and seen it as the pale blue dot in the floating abyss of space. And when you get back, having to readjust emotionally to looking up and seeing the sky and knowing what's on the other side of it is a thing that astronauts have to like go to therapy for and figure out how to reacclimate to that. And so the idea of these children who may have never seen the sky all of a sudden, like I'm on the ground looking up at the real vastness of the sky. It was, it's just like a fascinating idea to me and what that must be like to then have to readjust emotionally to getting back into a ship and having to go back into only mm. artificial sky. Like I'm just so interested in the idea of it. To be fair, the same thing about it's not a generational ship, how we think of generational ships now where it's like you get on this mm. and then you have babies that only live in space. It's like right, a yeah. lot of those people, unless they were like born out there, have like lived on space or lived in on earth or oh, wherever okay. and then it's like mom got a job on the enterprise so we're gonna go up there for five years in space but then we'll be back in san francisco or whatever so like it's not a generational shift oh, okay in in the sense that we think of it it's more of like uh mom got a job in iowa so we're moving to iowa for five years instead of like so we're moving oh, to okay space interesting for five years. interesting okay Although right. in Voyager, right, don't they have babies on the ship? Voyager's a whole different beast, yeah. Well, yeah, they get fucking lost in space. <laughs> yeah. So Voyager's a whole, yeah, because they get, like, thrown to the Delta Quadrant, and then they're like, we don't know how to get back. We we might be able to get home before we all die, <laughs> maybe. If we go at top speed, we'll all be Wild. 120. Well, okay, that's not going to do it. Oh, Let's break all the rules. Prime directive? Fuck it. That's Voyager. <laughs> Voyager is, we got lost. Let's break all the rules. We need to find some coffee before our captain kills us. 
That's Voyager. <laughs> I love how much of a plot point coffee is in that show. Yeah, Janeway is a bitch it's without true. her coffee. Is a is a true plot point. She loves her coffee in that whole in that whole show. Yeah. Well, and Neelix keeps trying to make new coffees, and they're all like one of the running gags is like, "Oh, what's today's coffee? Uh, well, it's it's called this, and it's kind of gross. It's made from gum." <laughs> Sorry, Eric. That's okay. I have nothing to contribute to the Voyager conversation. <laughs> well, I just was like, well, I wanted to clarify the general generational ship type okay too. yeah mm-hmm. i have a couple there's a couple more things i wrote down too so one of the other things they have to adjust to is showering and the like physical sensation of like taking a shower you have to like readjust emotionally being able to do that which is obviously something like that in star trek they've adjusted for but like today is still a problem that they face with like generational travel and like travel to mars and what that will be like the other thing that people said that they pointed out a lot was the idea of food and choice and being able to like choose what you eat and learning to like readjust to using utensils to eat those things is like a surprisingly emotional experience like we were saying before when you eat something that's like replicated or that is like science food it's sure it's fine you're like getting the nourishment that you need but the act of eating actual food that you want and you picked for yourself is a is an emotional experience that a lot of people find like they have to readjust to that for. or food that somebody like made for you right that's probably like a huge right, thing yeah. like my wife or my mom or my friend made me this food and is sharing this food with like love or whatever is probably like very intense yes absolutely one of the other things that um christina coke said that she said that getting used to the sense of time and like readjusting to the flow of time on earth. She, she had a really interesting quote that I liked a lot that she said, how long will it take me to reintegrate into everyday life with my family and friends to be an actual presence in their lives and not just a voice from space. And I think that that's that same idea of like, I can be a part of your life and you can make something for me and I can eat it and you can see me do that. And that like emotional readjustment to that I found is really Hmm. interesting. Uh, because I did all this too, and this is us now talking in 2021 about what it's like to re-enter. I also looked up a little about what it was like for the first people who came back from the moon to readjust, Neil, Buzz, and Michael. They thought that they could possibly bring back a moon plague, and so they had to go into quarantine when they came back. And so they knew that this kind of stuff was going to happen about like them having to readjust to the weight of being back on the planet, even after only being gone for like three weeks. And so they had to quarantine a crew of nine people before they got back from the moon for two weeks before they arrived so that they could all be quarantined together just in case they had this moon plague. And so they all did like physical therapy together and uh, Michael Collins had his birthday. And so they like had a cake and quarantined (laughs) together. Everybody like learned to walk again. And by the end of it, they were like, we clearly don't have a moon plague. Can we please get out of quarantine? But they made them stay for two full weeks on earth. They said the clock started the moment they left the moon coming back they had they said it was dumb obviously now this we could think that this is dumb because when they opened the capsule they were like well if there were like air particles from the moon plague like wouldn't they just like release and they were like well we're doing the best we can we're gonna figure it out i guess <laughs> but they made they had a designated swimmer when they did the ocean drop who had to swim out to them in a biohazard suit and then chuck a bunch of biohazard suits into their capsule so they could put them on in the capsule before coming out just in case they had the moon plague. <laughs> so reentry has come a long way. We've changed a lot in the years, even since the, in, since 1969. So, you know. We all watched Beyond the Time Barrier, so. <laughs> <laughs> just saying. Quarantine should be taken seriously. <laughs> yes. I really want you to watch Star Trek Beyond now, because there's a great, like, saucer separation moment that I feel like you're going to really like. Oh, yeah. I, the, that's... 
I'm I'm super into the saucer separation. I liked it a lot. It was great. And then watching the warp core explode, dope. I was into it. <laughs> That's good every time. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, talking about all those psychological effects, now it's making me think of the ending of Wally like a lot differently because of mm-hmm. all of those people like readjusting to being on Earth. Mm-hmm. Like physically and mentally, like that's mm-hmm. that's it's really interesting. Overwhelming, yeah. yeah. There's, I talked a little about this before with the saddles, but in the show The Expanse, there's a a woman who was born on Mars, who she comes to Earth for the first time, and all she can talk about is the uh, unbelievable expansiveness of the horizon and how I've I've been told what a horizon looks like, but to actually experience one for the first time is like terrifying and like you, you kind of can't stop looking at it because the unknowable uh, like meeting of the sky and the sea is just like how does this ex- how does all of this water exist how does all of this sky exist like this it was just a i thought it was a really beautiful part of the expanse where she talks specifically about like how emotionally overwhelming it is to see the sky for the first time that's really cool like- people keep talking about the expanse and I feel it's like I should really watch it. It's really good. It's really good. I'm very impressed, Erin, with your deep dive. Oh, thank you very much. I love the edutainment section. Yeah, I'm... she's real good at this. Thank you. I know. I have been friends with you for a long time, but I still enjoy like when you get excited about things. I love to get excited. <laughs> and like you're like, let me tell you all the facts. <laughs> <laughs> like I did an unnecessarily deep dive into what it's like to re-enter as an astronaut. I wrote down a whole list of symptoms. You know, like the it. whole thing. It's very on brand. Erin's fandom of things is like one of my favorite things. <laughs> thank you i appreciate it all right cool. that's that that wraps up our discussion of star trek generations thank you stella for joining us this yeah. was really fun if uh anytime you want to talk about star trek you know it's my bag <laughs> even the ones i don't like because i have a lot of opinions so about if uh, our listeners want to uh hear more of you talking about Star Trek, where can they go? Um, so Erin and I do a podcast called x Trek's Pod, where she shows me the X-Files, a show I've never seen, and I show her Star Trek, the original series, a show she's never seen, and then we have a lot of horny feelings about it, but we also do a lot of deep dive uh, fandom and fan lore stuff, so if you like to Erin when she gets excited about things, you should listen to it, uh, x Trek's Pod on any platform, um, and x Trek's Pod at, on Twitter, and then if you want to know uh more of my thoughts because i'm always tweeting about star trek you can follow me on twitter at stella underscore cheeks and hannibal those are my two favorites <laughs> yeah for now <laughs> for now whatever whatever you can follow me on instagram at nyd urgency and i am on instagram and twitter at b silverio 20 i'm on instagram at the indecisionist and on twitter at indecisionist this has been an indecisionist production Special thanks to Marlon Longit of Marlon and the Shakes for our theme song and to April Moralba for our podcast art. And if you want to join in on the conversation, you can use the hashtag time to party. That's time. The number two party. Talk to us about Star Trek. Did you hate this generation's movie? I don't get it. I liked it. It was fun. <laughs> it's real good. <laughs> yeah, a lot of fun. There are many worse Star Trek movies, so. <laughs> I have no doubt that that's true. But Star Trek V is not one of them. It's very good. <laughs> People say Star Trek V is the worst one. I feel like this one's right in the middle. It's really good. Yeah, this one's very middle. This is very, like, if you like TNG, if you like TOS, if you like Star Trek, you're going to be like, yeah, this is fine. Covers the bases. Yeah, yeah if you like the horse, horse girls. girls. This is for you. <laughs> <laughs> so until next time, party people, where we will be talking about another time travel movie. You know, they said in 
this movie that time has no meaning here. Well, time has meaning here on Time to Party. We'll see you next time. Be excellent to each other. God damn it, Ben. <laughs> party on, party people. <laughs> Every time I'm like, where is this going? I'm like, oh, I see where this is going. <laughs> Air guitar, the last one in space. <laughs> in space. <laughs>